Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a chance for authors to connect with readers after their book tours have been canceled due to the coronavirus. There's a lot of serious stuff going on in the world, but I hope this is a place where you can find new books and new authors to really enjoy during the time you might be self-isolated or social distancing. Any author, a debut author, or a seasoned veteran is welcome to join me on this digital book tour to read from their newest book and answer a short Q&A. That way, readers can really get to know the author and the ideas behind their book. Today's guest is Michael Zapata, whose debut novel, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, came out in early February. He says it's about exile, displacement, and parallel universes. It's also about how stories are told and history is rediscovered. And it also is about lost literature, which Michael wrote a list about for electric literature, and I'll definitely link that in the show notes because I discovered a lot of great books through it. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for asking me. So, you know, we're all navigating to to what feels like a, a before and then an after. So do it day, taking it day by day. Um, you know, and I'm also taking the small joys with all the challenging aspects and I'm able to spend some time with my family and my kids. So finding the small joys has been really helpful for sure. Definitely. And um, you're in Chicago, right? Yes, correct. How's this is a really lame question to ask, <laughs> but how's the weather? Because I'm I just moved to Denver and it's we have like a ten inches of snow expected today. Oh wow, yeah. So I, I woke up this morning and had to walk my dog, and so we had uh, a, a fog, a strange kind of fog, which only kind of added to the surreal <laughs> events of this week. Um, streets are very quiet. Uh, people are finally sort of listening, but yeah, strange slightly cold fog yeah I, I think the snow was helping me mentally because i would be inside anyway today you know so <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, instead that makes of it sense. being a gorgeous spring afternoon <laughs> um cool so your book um is called the lost book of adana moreau and tell readers what it's about yeah, so The Lost Book of Adana Moreau um, centers on a Dominican exile from 1916 who ends up in the city of New Orleans. Um, she marries a pirate, um, someone who calls himself the last pirate of the New World. And she writes what turns into be what turns into a cult classic science fiction novel called Lost City. She, she writes and starts the sequel a model Earth, um, and she gets ill during the Great Depression and destroys it. Some 75 plus years later in Chicago, a hotel concierge who is also in exile from Israel discovers the book and his grandfather's things after his grandfather passes away. So a lot going on in that. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes essentially at the core of it. I like to think about it as a story of exiles and a literary mystery at its heart. Awesome. And I know the reason I'm doing this digital book tour part of Day Beautiful is a lot of book tours were canceled and you're, yeah. you don't get a face-to-face reading with a lot of people who may want to hear you read. So I wanted you to read a little bit from it. What What are you going to read for us today? This is from the opening, the Dominicana, May 1916 to August 1930. His father was a pirate. He had black skin and was a pirate, regardless of his occupation, or maybe because of it, he was charming and warm-hearted and loved listening to most anybody who had a story to tell. His mother was a servant to an old Spanish sugar plantation family just outside of San Pedro de Macay. 
It was said she had Tiano blood in her veins and never lied. She had long coffee-colored hair, and all she had ever known her entire life was the plantation house where she worked with her mother, the seas of the Antilles, and her parents. On May 1916, excuse me, on May 16, 1916, American Marines landed on the island and her mother and father were killed in the ensuing guerrilla war waged by the peasant caballeros against the Marines, who, according to her father, were nothing more than tigueritos hired by greedy American businessmen who wanted to force them off their land to expand the sugar plantations. The night before her parents' death, she had been half asleep watching an ashy-faced owl perched outside her bedroom window when she heard her parents in the kitchen. She got out of bed. It was nearly midnight. We should leave now, her mother said. Her father put his finger to his lips and her mother nodded. In the morning, her father whispered. Her mother and father stood in the kitchen and held each other and she noticed there was blood on her father's pants. She understood then that her father and mother were caballeros. When her mother spotted her over her father's shoulder, she smiled and went to her. Her mother stroked her long, coffee-colored hair, just as she had done when she was a child, and told her that the world was the same as it ever was, and not to worry. First thing in the morning, the American Marines came to their home. They dragged her parents outside, bound their hands, and made them kneel in the sand. She heard the shots while hiding under their little village house, where there were small pools of water and dirt and sand and dirty ashen seashells. Once in a century, her father had told her, the sea flooded the land, and for a time, neither existed. Two days later, her family's employers decided to leave for New York City or back to Madrid. She couldn't remember, but the important thing is that they fled to a city that wealthy people had been fleeing to for centuries. The last thing they told her before speeding off in a taxi was that the Antilles were brutal, and she was one of the last of a brutal race. She thought of her mother, who had worked for the Spanish family for nearly 30 years. She was 16. She didn't want to go home, so she lived alone in the plantation house for two months, wandering from room to room, eating what was left in the kitchen, cleaning as she had done before, and sleeping for days at a time on a bed that had once belonged to a queen from the House of Bourbon. One afternoon, she packed her clothes and left the plantation house. She headed west toward Santo Domingo, sometimes walking for long stretches at a time along the coast, which was dotted with estates and villages without names or rather names she had never known, and sometimes riding in the back of a cart driven by a sugar worker who understood without saying so that she was the daughter of murdered caballeros. For five weeks, she wandered the streets of Santo Domingo, which were like the streets of a labyrinth and ate fish and bread scraps at the market. At night, she slept on park benches and dreamed of future civilizations and an endless seabed full of strange, luminescent creatures. At the end of five weeks, she met an American in the market who said he was trading with the Gavilleros and gave the American Marines. She didn't know why, but she told him the story of how the American Marines had killed her parents. He listened without saying a word, and when she was done, he said that he was really a pirate. He said that he gave the Gavilleros a deep discount and sold shoddy equipment to the American Marines at high prices. He was making money hand over fist. He apologized for talking so much, and then he said she was beautiful. He said that he had never seen a more beautiful woman in the Caribbean than her, and she told him that his Spanish was good, if a little outdated, and he said that he also spoke French and some Arabic. The pirate studied her face for a moment and then said he could get her on a ship that would take her to New Orleans. She shook her head. Why not? asked the pirate. Americans are greedy tegaritos, she said. They're shit. And me? I don't know yet. Maybe you're shit. Maybe you're not shit. Still, she thought about her prospects on the occupied island and decided to leave Santo Domingo. 
On the ship voyage, she met a boy who looked out of place. He had deep sky black eyes. When she asked the boy where he was from, he said he was from nowhere. So you're an orphan, she said. An orphan, he said and smiled politely. Like me, she said. Like everybody, she thought. Orphans are all the world really has left. For four days, she lived on the deck of a ship and slept near the orphan boy. She listened as he talked about war and mechanical soldiers and an eternal library that he would one day discover and never leave. He's mad, thought the servant girl. He spoke Spanish well enough, but sometimes he sang in a language that she didn't understand. The songs were like a melismatic trance. And one morning in the middle of a song, he stopped singing and told her that the ship was entering the eye of the Gulf of Mexico. How do you know where the eye is? She asked the boy, teasing him. Just look, he said and shrugged. The sea was deep blue and alien and as vast as the sky. She imagined that in the distant future, the end of the world would have its origins there, and for some unknown reason, this put her at ease. When the ship arrived in New Orleans, the pirate was waiting for her. A few days later, he asked for her hand in marriage, and she said yes. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you so much for reading that. That that was like you said, the very beginning of the book, the Dominicana, and it and that section takes place from nineteen sixteen to nineteen thirty. And I do want to get into the scope of this book, but I do love the first line and I want to talk about that. His father was a pirate. Yes, thank you. <laughs> what are, you, you, oh go ahead. No, what a great opening line. Um <laughs> was that the first line you wrote for the book? It, it actually was. It's one of the very few lines that remain the same from the very, very first draft to the last. Um, I had have always had this this obsession with New Orleans. I've been going since I've been 20 multiple times a year for my entire life. And um, I had previously lived in Ecuador before writing this book. And, and I had written a disastrous, terrible novel in the course of five months. And I threw it away, got rid of it. And, uh, you know, I was just walking in Chicago and it was like snowy, classic sort of wintry Chicago day. And it, the line just kind of popped in my head when I was thinking about visiting New Orleans. I just kind of went with it. Since that was the genesis of the book, how did the rest follow? Where did these pieces fall into place? Yeah, you know, once I once I kind of like hinged on the fact, I, I wrote the first kind of chapter, first section quite quickly, um, didn't change too much. But once I kind of hinged on the fact that it was going to largely in the beginning take place in New Orleans, I started going to New Orleans differently than I had been previously. And that was for historical research. Um, and just like uncovering the extraordinary neighborhoods um, just east of the French Quarter and the French Quarter themselves and, and, and how different and how powerfully almost like a parallel universe the city seemed not only in its history, but to this day, uh, I just became obsessed with the history of New Orleans and, and sort of like bunkered down into it. And, and, and I think that kind of led a lot of where the story ended up. How did the scope go from the early 1900s to post-Katrina? Did you always intend for it to be that wide, or did it kind of just snowball as you started creating these characters in this world? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. I think as I started writing, maybe about a third of the way through, I kind of felt that, you know, Katrina's interesting in, in the sense that it was, for my generation, I'm 40, it, it was one of, I think, the first event in which, you know, the so-called American empire came home. 
our lack of of inability to deal with the catastrophe which rings very sort of surreal today obviously and, and this week but our, you know the american empire is not only its inability to deal with catastrophe but also that it turns on itself in the sense of like the catastrophe of new orleans was followed by privatization it was followed by erasing voices of people it, it was followed by all those things that our empire had done to other countries and 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 for me and i think for a lot of people in my generation it was maybe the first wake-up call that it was a different type of different type of world we were entering mm-hmm. yeah the book as a whole seems to be a lot about the importance of stories and how we tell them were yeah. stories always something you were telling even as a child or how did how did you become a writer yeah uh such a good question you know i i grew up my mother's family had has has lived in chicago for for longer than a hundred years and they have lithuanian jewish descent um, and a lot of those narratives and traditions and Jewish heritage are, are still retained in my family. And my father's an immigrant from Ecuador. Um, both, both of them sort of building new languages, you know, Spanglish and new worlds in my house. I, I didn't tell stories so much as listen. Um, I think I was very fortunate growing up to have not only these family lineages, but also families that within themselves contained storytellers. My dad as an extraordinary storyteller, my Jewish grandfather from Chicago, who's still alive in 97, almost he's, he's a wonderful storyteller. And, and I just had this opportunity and I think I was lucky enough as a kid to just like shut up for five minutes and just like listen. And it wasn't until much later, of course, that those like tendrils and, and those ways in which my family's told stories started to like emerge. Um, and the fact that I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Did that family history, it seems to have maybe played a big part in how the history of these characters kind of unfold in similar ways with, Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Is, is that how, like, you kind of pull different pieces? I know you talked about New Orleans, but then your father's from Ecuador, and which is yeah. very different than the, the Dominican, but did you pull yeah. from those different areas? I think, I think what pulled, rather than specifically my own family story, was sort of the the structure of exile. I, I think stories of exile resemble each other in the sense that the, the people who are forced to go through exile are, are dealing with catastrophic change. They're dealing with a before and an after. Um, so the more and more I think about even just the word um, immigrant, I'm becoming more and more suspicious of it just because of the sense that it's so much tied to a nation state. Right, which is a relatively new i new idea, two hundred years, um, and I I became more sort of obsessed with the idea of the experience of exile. So less and less about becoming an American, and more and more about moving from one world to another. And I think the the structure of exile, and the way narrative works, and then the way we tell stories has similar themes, regardless of if you're escaping a pogrom. Um, in Eastern Europe, or you're sort of escaping an American invasion of a Caribbean island. Those, those structures, I think, sort of unite the ways in which stories are told. They give solidarity to it. But also, I, I really became really became obsessed too with this idea of that stories unfolding. You know, a lot of the novel itself takes tangents, and there's stories and stories. And I think the structure sort of lends itself towards 
um, lends itself not only towards exile, but in the way in which stories have been told um, in, in the Jewish tradition and the Latin American tradition for, for a long time. And as these stories are told over decades, centuries, when you went back to research, were there things that surprised you that you thought you had a grasp on, but really learned you didn't? Absolutely. I think history always proves the writer wrong. <laughs> there's, there's, it's, it's so big. It's so immersive. And, and when you sit down and look at the historical scope and, and how to contain that in, in, in anything, what, what surprised me the most, I think, in, in this process was I was so busy, especially reading the Great Depression. Um, you know, a good portion of the novel takes place during the Great Depression. And, and I had started thinking and researching and writing about it after the Great Recession. Um, in 2008 and 2009. And what surprised me the most was when I was going through the research was the point at which I stopped doing the historical research and started reading the oral tradition. For me is when it became the most impactful in the way I was approaching not only the novel, but in the way I thought about history. Um, and, you know, there's this great, there's this great oral historian here in Chicago called, his name Studs Terkel. Um, passed away some years ago in his 90s, and, and he was a master at sort of recording different periods of history. He had a book on race. He had a book on uh, the Great Depression called Hard Times, which was just like this collection of oral traditions. And, and so I really started digging into like the oral tradition, and, and, and I think that's when the story started to make sense because we have these grand historical moments just just like we're all trying to contend with this week. And what it comes down to is those moments in which the individual um, interprets how that impacts their lives and, and the small joys and, and the challenges that come along with it. And what surprised me most, I think, and what was actually sort of beautiful about the Great Depression is, is sort of like falling onto this very almost boring <laughs> fact that humans and people during that time were kind and decent and wanted decent lives. It, it's almost this oversimplified, boring thing, but I, I think there's a truth to it that I saw in the oral traditions in the ways in which people came together. Um, and when we're not going through catastrophe, it feels kitschy or it feels naive. And then what's extraordinary is when those times of catastrophe happen in, in lieu of any reaction from the federal government or in lieu of any grand political solutions, we have, we have this like network of decency that gets us through it. I, I think a lot of us are feeling that this week. I like that you bring that up about the great depression, which was obviously this big tragedy in our country's yeah. history. And I was reading on Twitter or Reddit or, you know, wasting time on the internet during yeah. my self distancing right now. Um, and it was about, you're more like you're least likely to die during a catastrophe because you're, you're spending less money. You're not smoking. Yeah. You're not cars aren't out on the street. Yeah, which was obviously people will die from how the administration failed to react in the Correct. previous months. Correct. But reasons that we might die for other in other ways is is lower, which obviously mm -hmm. isn't the silver lining. But it is interesting. Well, it. It's interesting in the sense of like I'm thinking about it. I have a three-year-old and I have a six-month-old. Mm. Um, so my wife and I are home. My wife's an art teacher. Um, 
fifth through eighth. And so she's home and I'm working from home. And it's, it's interesting because as these, as history unfolds before your eyes and it's impossible for any single person to sort of comprehend what will happen. You know, I always think like the, the, the past and the future sort of collide in the present and we're sort of left like contending with the fact of how do we live day to day? We know the historical record. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it was like, I think I told you in the beginning, there was like these quiet, moments that I'm having with my sons that I wouldn't normally have because of the hyper aggression of the focus of work in the United States, you know, the, the, the sense that family comes second, the sense that we, we aren't able to access some of the most meaningful things about who we are day to day. And that, that means reading. It means books. It means silly movies with your partners. It means, being able to play with my son during um, lunch. Um, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot today, about that, the calling friends who I wouldn't normally on a, on a Tuesday night not call friends and talk to them for two hours. Like, you, you know, it's, there's, there's this, this simultaneous shrinking and networking of just day to day that, and it's interesting to me that so much of that also happened during the Great Depression in which there was, no economic choice but to help and cling to each other and, and and humans are complicated we have complicated relationships but the fact is is people became for better or worse had to become closer mm-hmm. yeah it's and especially like i think about the literary community right now how yeah bookstores are closing authors tours are being canceled and we're all reaching out and touching each other's lives in ways yeah you're right i wouldn't normally do I, I wouldn't have the time to talk to an author in the middle of the day because my day yeah. job which you know i need to pay rent and absolutely bills and uh yeah um and when we talked a lot about how a lot of pieces of this book came together uh, one big piece is obviously the idea of lost the literature as well yeah and you wrote a great list on electric literature about novels and books we've almost lost it was so much fun <laughs> i loved it and Thank you. Uh, I, I learned a lot I, and that's like you said history we we think we know so much about it but it, it falls by the wayside sometimes yes when did what interests you in lost literature and books you know this this idea that what we know in history is so minuscule to just the grand sort of course of events and all the people that have existed. It's always very a melancholy thought to me that when someone passes away, most things about them disappear within a few years. Right. And how do we contend with that? And how do we contend with that sort of like overwhelming mortality? And, and, and I feel like literature has this extraordinary ability, not just to record people's lives, but to record the weirdest parts of their lives, like the most imaginative and, and, and strange lives. And, and so I feel like when throughout history, if someone commits to a story and to a book and, and that's an aspect of them that is hidden from the rest of the world day to day. And for that to get lost is like a terrifying thing to me, like for, 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 for someone's consciousness almost to get lost is terrifying. And a lot of it too is my great-grandfather was a um, political exile in Ecuador, and he was a poet, but he was an exiled poet, and he, couldn't, he could never publish his work. 
um, just for political reasons. And so he, but he quietly wrote poetry for his entire life. Uh, my grand, which is, I'm referring to the opening of that um, article um, about lost, the lost literature. And what was extraordinary to me is finding out that my grandfather had said he might know where some of it is, like some poetry is. And so I became obsessed with finding it. It took nine years for us to track it down. So I, I think I'm almost subconsciously as I was writing this novel about a lost book, I was thinking of my great grandfather's lost book of poetry. Um, and we did find it. We did find it. And it's extraordinary. And I'm going through it uh, poem by poem. Um, but that's the only way I would ever know him. And it's only one version of him. So lost, like a, the idea of a lost, lost literature, this lost record sort of destroys me and and most most literature is lost yes yeah i think overwhelming thing yeah it's i I think about that i think your book is a must read in times like this when authors who spent a decade writing their debut or how long did how long were you working on this debut yeah um from start to finish obviously with the publishing process Mm -hmm. built into that it was 10 years it took me maybe about seven years to write it Yeah. yeah i think someone whose book was published on Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, I know the internet exists now and maybe it won't in the future, but so much can get lost right now. It's, it's true. And I, a lot of writers are feeling this very real. And I think we admit oftentimes guilty pain Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, we say, this is, this is a book and, and hopefully our lives continue and we keep our jobs and we have our health. But it is something that people invest a large portion of their lives and it's the ways in which we connect to other people. You know, we're soon going to be teaching my son to read, um, you know, read letters and, and we read to him all the time. And when I start to feel guilty about, you know, feeling like the gut punch of, you know, having, having, you know, events shut down or, you know, the indie by my house in, in Chicago and in New Orleans, they've been so supportive and, and people have been sending me pictures of the books that were in the front glass windows and bookstores. And now those bookstores are empty. It's both surreal. And I think you're right. It's a summation of, of, of 10 years of my life. And then I start to feel guilty, right? Because I, as of right now, I'm healthy. I do have my job, but then thinking about and teaching my son to read is going to be a beautiful, challenging effort. And why do that? Obviously, we need to read for skill. But at the end of the day, I'm reading him stories. Like at the end of the day, it's it's this method by which we connect and we survive. And so for those writers out there who have their debuts or have their books and they feel like they're going to be lost, um, I, I think it's it's okay to feel that. I think it's it's absolutely okay. Um, because like I said earlier, it's during this time that we're seeking more connections with people and books rise to the surface. I, I, it's just my hope that we can build something that sustains the books that have been recently published and soon to be published. Yeah. Speaking of like those connections and you mentioned now, even though the world might be collapsing around us, you got to have playtime with your son during lunch. Yeah. Uh, are you able to read a little more? What are you What are you reading? So this week, I have as as we sort of navigate towards you know working at home, I haven't been able to read much this week. But um, there is going to be time for for more reading, and and that is something that is meaningful to me. Um, 
I've always had, a, I've had a long commute for a while and, and to be able to sit home, you know, I'm, I have a, I have a stack and one book that I recently finished just before all this happened that I have to give a shout out to is the everlasting by Katie Simpson Smith, which is going to be released on Tuesday. Um, it's her third book and it's an extraordinary elegant novel that spans the course of 2000 years of Roman history. Um, it spans the collapse and rise of different societies and it's very focused on this concept of, of history is layered, but it's false. One of the main characters who pops in and out is the devil and the devil has these conversations with these characters as they're navigating um, th- this 2,000-year history. It- it's just a beautiful novel, and it w- I would be heartbroken. I'm never, I would never speak for Katie, but I would be heartbroken if that novel were to be lost um, because it is publishing on Tuesday. Wow. Yeah, that, I just looked it up as you were speaking, and it's definitely something that I feel I, I would love and I definitely need to get it from a independent bookstore that's still shipping if they, if they are able to. Absolutely. It's, it's, I, it, it was one of my most anticipated 2020 reads and reading it during this time has been especially, especially for me, uh, meaningful. I, I think it's a book everyone should go get immediately. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me during this day <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> you know. absolutely and and thank you so much for reaching out and I, and i think these these conversations i've been looking so forward to this conversation all week um as as we sort of deal with the day-to-day right now so thank you thank you so much to michael zapata for taking the time to talk to me on this digital book tour you can find him at michaelzapata.com or on twitter at mike zapata zero one i'll link those in the show notes Again, a lot of stuff's going on in this world. We don't know what the future holds, but we have each other. And remember, if your state hasn't voted in the primaries, please vote. And please vote this November. Our lives probably depend on it. Follow Daybeautiful at daybeautiful.net. All of the socials are just at daybeautiful. Everyone stay safe. I'll see you next time.